Well, good afternoon. Good to see you all today. We're going to go ahead and get started with the uh, Q&A time. If we get done with all the questions that we've had submitted, we may take some from the floor. We apparently have to be done by 2.15. Okay, and then we're going to take a brief break, and I think we come back at 2.30 for the afternoon session. Why don't we have a word of prayer as we, uh, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us in this hour. Help us. Help our brothers as they uh, field questions and give answers. We pray that you would, for your glory and for the good of your people, that you would just bless us with truth as we consider these various questions. We thank you for them, and we ask your help for our brothers in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, we have about eight questions, but I think maybe a few of the guys have received maybe some questions on their way up to the platform, and so we'll just kind of start with these, and if one of these questions happens to overlap with one you were given, then you can, I guess, answer that together. Uh, It says, you mentioned several times, it doesn't say who you is, but I think maybe uh, it's been mentioned by different people, you mentioned several times pre-modern, the pre-modern method of hermeneutics. Can you pinpoint some ways a modern hermeneutic differs from this pre-modern hermeneutic? What are some implications? And I have a microphone. Who would like to go first? I'm the one that mentioned it. All right. (laughs) He's just facilitating the microphone over to you. It's going to be rough. I need a tissue. Um, Do you anticipate crying? I don't think these are that bad. You don't have to be that that emotional about the whole thing here. Thanks. I might need I might need these. That's probably true. where it is confessed that uh, it, is, it has divine and human authorship, um, it would predominantly look at the text, and what would that be, grammatical, historical um, method? Is that kind of what it would be called? But it would look at it from the standpoint of um, what did the original author, meaning the human author, uh, intend um, by, by that? So did Moses intend, um, did, he, did he know full well uh, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity as such and, and writing um, Genesis 1. Um, and modern scholarship would, would rule it out uh, as a given that, that he didn't. Um, I'm not sure that that's entirely a given, but, but a given that he didn't and therefore um, it, would, it, it would be improper. Yeah, the, the, and therefore the text itself doesn't intend uh, for us to, to, to derive that, to read, read it in that way. And pre-modern way would would um, r- fully recognize the human authorship of of scripture, but tends by and large to put the much greater emphasis upon the divine authorship, um, and therefore scripture interprets scripture. Um, e- even the New Testament interprets, uh, especially the New Testament interprets the Old Testament and informs us as to how we're to read it. This is what Jesus did, of course, but. Um, That'd be the biggest difference. I've, I've, I have one more thought, but do you want to? 
um, yeah, I think the the emphasis on human authorial intent is uh, much more pronounced in after the Enlightenment, and I think it's actually uh, a product of the Enlightenment in one sense because the major thing that happened then was the denial of. Um, of the inspiration of scripture the bible became like any other book and i forgot who it was but one of the philosophers in england basically said that uh, we are to interpret scripture like any other book and i i, I was taught that way and and uh, the pre-modern guys would say it's not like any other book um, so we can't and should not and can't correctly interpret it like any other book. What happens with the human authorial intent uh, as the end all is lose the text for the background because how are you going to know how the guy thought? But, uh, you need background information. So you need to know how, you know how big Paul's foot was, how big the sandals were, and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, but you lose the background the text for the background, I think, when you, you, you over... A good thing overdone gets undone, and I think that's what human authorial intent does. That's why and I was asking questions and kind of teasing them out. I think in my last lecture when I said, is God free to act and, and embed the act with tons of meaning, but not tell us until later? If he's not, we have big problems. You know? Because the act of the Exodus occurred before the writing down of it. And there's more to the Exodus as a, a redemptive um, symbol, or it's more than a symbol. Ooh, there's a book called More Than a Symbol, huh? Uh, as a typological act, then just the recording of it in Exodus 12 and following. You know, you read the prophets, and there's a Exodus motif that grounds itself in the past, but has future-oriented connotations to it. So you have this, they call it the second exodus motif. And the second exodus, actually, Jesus used the word exodus, said, I have an exodus to undergo. Um, so you have all these acts of God that mean more than the human author is, is writing. And I just think it's a wrong question to ask, you know, what would Moses, what was Moses' intent? I remember watching John Piper once, because somebody sent me this clip of him talking about how he exegetes passages, and he was, you know, a piper. He's, I'm, I'm going to get in the eyeball, behind the eyeballs of the Apostle Paul and see what he saw, and then he'd get into his world. Sorry. Get into his world. And I, I, said, I said to myself, and I told my students, I said, you know, overdoing this human authorial intent thing is it's, it's not good, because when it's all said and done, the guy's dead, and all you have, well, all you have, you have his text. That's what's important. This is God's written word, not, you know, what the apostle was thinking, you know, when he wrote. Um, so, anyway, I, I think that's what the modern era does. And the implications include um, an unwillingness, I think, to read the scriptures theologically and to do what Chuck did with Genesis 1, which I think was very legitimate to do. Um, Another thing, another implication is it's going to take a lot of hymns away from us. Because if you read those old hymns, they got a different hermeneutic, at least th th that I was trained with. Um, you, you can't come to those conclusions hymns with a modern hermeneutic. It presupposes 
tons of times. By the way, there's more times in the Bible than we're ever going to feel comfortable with. I need to put this up to my mouth. Actually, I need to put it over to his mouth now. There's more types than we're comfortable with. Um, maybe just to expand on one thing. So you mentioned theological interpretation or, or reading. Um, I, I think that the, the modern, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I, I perceive that the modern approach limits itself to, um, let's call it exegetical reasoning. They, they ask the, these are good questions. The pre-moderns are concerned with this too. They're asking the question of what the text says in relation to its, the words in relation to its surrounding context. And of course they put in there the um, textual, historical textual context of the, of the divine author. I mean, excuse me, the human author or something. But but I think the pre-modern approach goes beyond that and, and has a, uh, involves theological reasoning, involves um, uh, a, a much fuller picture of what it means for Scripture to be interpreting Scripture. Um, how, how do we know, how do we know uh, um, authorial and human author intent? Um, not infallibly, but, but you'd, you'd engage in historical studies or something in that regard. How do you know divine authorial intent? Well, it's by reading the scripture as a whole and allowing scripture to, allowing what God says in all parts of his scripture to interpret um, each and every part itself. And so you bring all of the theology that, that uh, is founded upon the word of God to, to the text of scripture and, and allow what God has said uh, to um, I'm rambling now, but this would be theological r- reasoning. Uh, uh, there's a couple articles on one issue that I think illustrates the the superiority of pre-critical exegesis. That, that's the third article, uh, that article. But it, it, the ones I'm thinking of, I, I don't remember either of the, of the authors, but it has to do with that statement in 1 Corinthians 15, according to the scriptures, and he was, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, okay? There's two articles out there. I think I have in my hermeneutics footnote someplace. It's a fascinating study. Third day resurrection of the Messiah is in the Old Testament, is what Paul says, okay? According to the scriptures, I... I probably plural there, in more than one place. Third day resurrection of the Messiah is in the Old Testament. Now, if you just read the Old Testament without the New, would you conclude the third day resurrection of the Messiah is clearly in the Old Testament in more than one text? Probably not. But if you read the New Testament, you go, okay, either I'm going to disagree with Jesus, which I'm not going to do. Jesus saw the third day resurrection of himself in at least Jonah, right? So he, and did he impose a new meaning on an old text? Did he get the right doctrine from the wrong text? No. He got the right doctrine from the right text. But if Paul's scriptures, plural, uh, means there's more than one passage, then we have to read broader than just Jonah. Uh, and there's at least one more place in Hosea 6. If you read Hosea 6, 2, it's a really different text. But if you read all the old guys, third day resurrection of the Messiah, it's a corporate Israel uh, text. 
and, but it talks about the third day and being raised on the third day. There's a couple more places. Uh, Genesis 22, um, Isaac, there's, there's third day stuff there. And then here's what's very interesting. The older pre-modern guys have no problem going to the third day of creation and seeing things coming out of the ground and making a relationship to the resurrection because the Lord himself and his apostle use that metaphor. Grain, coming stuff coming up out of the ground. Matter of fact, there's a hymnal. There's a song in the hymnal about the resurrection. Um, the wagging of the grain heads at the resurrection. Um, but you read the old guys, and these modern guys did it too. They connected third day resurrection with the third day of creation. Whether or not you want to do that or not but, uh, is another story. But that, that's, that's just an illustration of, I think, reading the Bible as it ought to be read, holistically, canonically, and taking our knowledge of what the Lord and the apostles tell us is in the Old Testament back to the Old Testament. I have no problem doing that whatsoever. When you do that, the Bible is actually a Christian book. When you don't, it's two books. One's Christian, and the other one's Jewish. Just hold on. Hold on. Oh, oh you guys. I thought you had a look. How about something to read? I was, well, I was going to ask if you mentioned, I think Steinmetz's article there, um, maybe some of the guys would appreciate articles or even a couple of monographs or edited works that would help David, them. David, David Steinmetz, right? Uh, the superiority of pre-critical exegesis. Not sure if it was Jim or somebody, but 20 years ago or so, I read it, and it's been very helpful. I think you have, somebody has... You can find it online. It's online. But yeah. We have students read it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't have students read it because I know they read it in one or two other classes, but that's very helpful. Um, and then, you know, speaking of Steinmetz, his Calvin in context and Luther in context, those are very good. He deals with exegetical and They talk right into the end. And then, uh, and then, um, what's that guy's name? Um, the Letter and the Spirit, Stanglin. Stanglin. That, that's a helpful book, too. Um, I like it. I give it to students to read, and then I tell them he's a He's an Arminian. But he studied under Richard Muller, and it's a very good book on hermeneutics and pre-critical stuff. Um, there's a couple books on patristic. Oh, you know what? Um, Brandon's, Brandon Smith up there at Cedarville? I think he's coming out with a, a book on pre-critical hermeneutics pretty soon or something like that. I'm really looking forward to that. There's some of these young guys that are really solid, and he's, he's one of them on... on the guy on that did the book on typology, is that Chase? Mitch, uh, Mitch Chase, yeah. His book, uh, I, I endorsed it. Um, alleg- uh, 40 Questions on Typology and Allegory. That's an outstanding book. I just... I read the whole book. I never endorse a book unless I read you every... Love the cover. I read every single word of that book. Um, the cover, I didn't know the... the what the cover was going to be like before it was published but that, that's a very good book Mitch Chase has that book it's more, you know, it's for pastors probably I wouldn't have that on our book table Mitch also has, what's that book uh, Matt, that book on the Old Testament, what's that it's, it's, it's like 50 or 60 pages and it deals with major themes in the Old Testament as a, 
Christologically. It's very well written. Um, so, so that's it. Folks's article? Yes, Francis Folks has an article on the typology in the Old Testament or something. It's old, like 60s or something, but it's, it's also online. It's really good, really helpful. Uh, and basically, he argues that history is eschatological, And, and God's acts are often um, setting the world up for a future greater act. He, see, he sees that theme in the Old Testament itself, which is part of the genius of that piece, is that um, what we normally think about typology is the types in the Old Testament and the antitypes in the New Testament. But folks and others argue there's typology that's happening before the incarnation. There's things that are being done that are looking forward to things, other things that are being done within the Old Testament itself, which ultimately still, you know, mm-hmm. point yeah, forward. So, very good. so there's nothing, you know, they asked G.K. Bill this one time, Dr. Bill, what's new about the New Testament? And he said, not much. <laughs> um, Christianity is the conclusion to the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. Let's jump ahead a little bit. Do I have any liberty with these questions in the order or whatever. Um, since you guys touched on the issue of uh, pre-modern, modern, and uh, back to Genesis chapter 1, let's go back there uh, with another question. What, what, about, what do we do with the belief uh, that uh, us or our in Genesis chapter 1? Some would say, well, that's, just, that's not a Trinitarian reference. That's just the royal we. Um, what do we do with that? How do we answer that? I would um, encourage... Uh, somebody to read Last Things First, J. Fas- John Fesco, because mm-hmm. um, he deals with that very issue. And apparently, the royal we post dates the writing of Genesis by a few hundred, if not more, years. So um, it doesn't work anymore. Somebody found that archaeological find at some point. So it, that, that view is, I think, discredited, has been discredited. Um, <clears throat> staying in Genesis 1, let's talk about the creed. Uh, when it comes to understanding Genesis 1, are we supposed to presuppose Nicene orthodoxy before coming to the text? Uh, that's kind of a yes or no question, but feel free to elaborate. No, we should do a mental dump of all information in our head before we read Genesis. We should rid our brains even of the alphabet. Why don't you give the mic a Just start over. Uh, Well, look, if we don't call it Nicene Orthodoxy, okay, if we just say, should we bring God's revelation of himself and use it in our reading of Genesis 1, we would say yes, Okay. What do you mean by Nicene Orthodoxy? If you mean words not in the word that accurately reflect the word, then I'd say, yeah, take it with you. I tell the, I tell the students that. Take the entire confession of faith with you when you interpret the Bible. Sure. Because if you don't take it, you're going to take something else. Why not take it? Hey, good little time tested. Yeah. <laughs> Ditto. I remember about 25 years ago, I read something that Michael Horton had said. Um, he said, everybody takes somebody to the Bible. You just need to know who you're taking with you. 
You know, you're carrying somebody with you. This idea that somehow we're just coming to the Bible with pure objectivity and no influences is uh, is out. Sit, what did it, there's a technical term of situatedness or giving some, that and taking it yeah, back. It's, just, it's really important. We have to when you you interpret scripture. You know, um, I don't know where this statement came. Me and my Bible out under a tree or something like that, which is in, impossible, because. I'm 61, believe it or not, years old. It's 2023. There are various circles or levels of context in which I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible at a certain time in the history of mankind with a bunch of influences in my head, all of which I can't identify. Some I can. Some I've thrown out. Others I didn't have. I now have. I, you have to... Everybody brings assumptions and presuppositions to everything they interpret. Um, so why not have the best ones? You know, I, that's what I tell the students. Why, if, if you admit this, then why not ask the question, what are the best uh, interpretive assumptions, or what's the best grid or grids through which I can interpret this document? Because we all have them. So anyway, I'm just mumbling. He's going to let you answer. Next, next question. All right. Um, well, this one doesn't mention Nicene Orthodoxy or the Creed, per se, but uh, I know sometimes Nicene Orthodoxy comes into the conversation about complementarianism. Right? Um, some within the complementarian camp make the argument that there is equality in marriage as the wife submits to the husband because there is equality in the Godhead as the son submits to the father. Given what we've learned about the creator-creature distinction, is this analogy problematic? If so, why? Yes. Because if you read Ephesians 5, the Christ church analogy um, is connected to the husband-wife analogy. It's not father-son analogy. It's, it's the Son of God incarnate as mediator so, um, and, and the church. Gender-based role distinctions in Scripture are not based on a trinity. They're based on creation and then this redemptive analogy in Ephesians 5. So I, I think... Uh, it was Fred Sanders who told me this. He goes, go, this is Fred, going from sex to God or God to sex never works. He meant gender by that, okay? It, it doesn't work. Um, and we don't have to scripturally. I think you, you go to the texts on genders and, and, and roles, it's based on nature or creation. It's not based on Trinity. And I think it was a bad move whoever started, started doing that. It's, it's a pretty historically novel move I've asked Scott Swain and, and Fred Sanders. According to Scott, Fred Sanders is, he calls him, our greatest Trinitarian theologian. What's, Fred's a dispensationalist, but he's, he's a nice guy. Um, I asked those guys when that started to be used, and as far as I remember, it was either an odd microphone, by the way. Maybe hold the middle of it. You may be covering up the sensor at the bottom. I don't know. Um, Maybe. 60s or 70s is when they kind of 
pinned it back to, and it could have been the 1960s or 70s. It could have been because of the social Trinitarianism of mm. feminists or something, and then the more conservative guys start pushing back. And Jim might remember this. Even George Knight was pro- pushing this, this analogy back into the Trinity, um, I don't know, in the 70s? In his oh, it's in there too. Uh, you see, that, that's very interesting because, you know, in the 2016 Liam Gallagher-induced Twitter war of, on the Trinity, uh, it's the Southern Baptists that, that got pushed against, but it was actually an OPC minister. I think he was in the PCA at the time. Hmm. That was, up, as far as exegetical basis in the 70s or 80s, was really pushing it. And that's where that book, that big blue book on complementarianism. Wayne Grudem yep. and Piper. Yeah, yeah, the Grudem and Piper thing. I, I bet you Dr. Knight, who, by the way, I met, who endorsed my uh, book on the Decalogue, who was a very dear man, um, but I disagreed with him on this. But I think he has an article in there, too. So I, the more I've read on it, the more I just thought, this had to be a pushback against something. And I think it must have been some sort of feminism or something that they're pushing back on. But right. if you read John Gill, you read John Calvin, read Gilmore and Calvin. Uh, you read the old guys, none of them say anything like that. It's a, it's a novel thing. Anything to put in there? I don't have much to say, but just thinking in terms of um, this idea that the that the uh, relationship between the husband and the wife is an analogy of um, of the trinitarian relationships. It, it's it's a well, it's a scripture never makes that move, never justifies the move, and it becomes rather problematic. It's it doesn't produce an actual analogy of the Trinity. I mean, even <clears throat> obviously in terms of subordination, it certainly doesn't. But, but it it doesn't incorporate um, all the personal relations within the Trinity. It's a very deficient uh, analogy, if it if it were ever one to begin with. Um, male and female are made in the image of God. If we if we're looking for the analogy, I think that that's that's where we look. It's not. Um, husband and wife and the order of that relation, it's male, he made them male and female in the image of God. We're to look at that, which we'll do to some extent a little later. Yeah. The other thing, it, no, never mind. I was going to ask, you know, all of these could use resources, I suppose, but are there, you mentioned Gill, you mentioned Calvin, of course they're not interacting with the contemporary arguments that are being made for this issue of subordinationism. Um, are there resources you could point guys to today, maybe brothers who are interacting with the historic sources to help give clarity and arguments? People in their churches come up and make these kinds of arguments. You know, Pastor, we need to see the son subordinate to the father because yes. wives are submissive to One of the books is over here, Scott Swain's Introduction to the Trinity. He's got two newer books on the Trinity. The other one's a, the Bible and the Trinity or something like that. So Scott Swain, uh, we should definitely listen to him on Trinity. He's, he's very good at it. 
Um, there's uh, for the pastors. There's a book called Hot Disputes. What's it called? Oh, oh nice and hot. Nice and Hot Disputes by Dixon, Peter Dixon, not Peter. Dixon is the author. It might be expensive. It is outstanding. Anti-Trinitarianism in the 17th century. If you wonder, you ever wondered why three, where three centers of consciousness came from, mm-hmm. read that book. You'll get it from the anti-Trinitarians in the universities in the late 17th century. And, uh, <laughs> and defining divine persons univocally with human persons that came out of the anti-Trinitarian movement as well. So, uh, which is very interesting. You don't want to call the guys that hold this in our day. You guys are kind of being like neo and neo-Socinians and anti-Trinitarians here in your. They don't like that. Right? No, they don't like that. Probably not going to win many friends that way, but Philip Dixon is the author of the, Disputes book. There's another, uh, you know, Fred Sanders. I think on on Trinity is really his book on Trinity is really good, especially when he denies Christophanies, like Augustine. He doesn't want that. He wants you to hold that. Okay. While you're holding that, he wants you to work on your pronunciation, but that's okay. That's not Sam good. Sam Renahan's Deity and Decree has really good Doctrine of God stuff. And he gets it from John John Norton, mm. America's greatest theologian. Mm. All right. Let's talk about creation, six-day creation type stuff. Most of our modern discussions revolve around stuff like day-age theory. You mentioned the exegetical tradition. Do you believe they're missing the point of the text? And how do you think best to interact? I assume that the antecedent of their missing is the advocates of the day-age theory. That's not clear, but I assume that that's what this is about. Do you believe the advocates of the day-age theory are missing the point of the text, and how do you think best to interact? Um, Yes, I do think that that's the case. You know, if you study the history of the interpretation of the creation account, you will find that it's not until the modern era that the idea of a longer period of time for the days enters in. Um, There was a Scotsman, a newspaper man, who became enamored of geology in the 19th century, and what a very important Scottish Presbyterian, and accepted the new and developing views of geology and introduced them into the interpretation of the creation account of Genesis. Now, I think that part of the problem is that uh, this, this may surprise you that I say this. No, no it won't. You'll agree with me, probably. Science is a bully. It really is. If you invoke science, you automatically win whatever argument you're trying to win, whether it's real science or pseudoscience. You've just invoked the bully, 
And the bully wins. The bully beats up everyone. And I think that that's the case in the interpretation of of the first three chapters of Genesis, but especially the creation account as we find it in Genesis chapter 1. I read a really interesting article last week um, about pseudo-scientific papers that have been published in major science and medical journals and how they've been demonstrated to be uh, manipulating facts uh, in order to get to the conclusion that they want to present. Now, I, I don't want to undermine the importance of studies and the importance of uh, general revelation and understanding the world that God has given to us. And we can be very thankful for the advancements that have come to us. We, we ought to thank God that he has given people the ability to work through um, the world in which we live and bring to us remedies or insights into that world. The problem is when the bully science trumps, I don't mean to use that word on purpose, forgive me, no implication there, don't read anything into that. When, when the bully overcomes the word of God, overpowers the word of God, and forces us to readjust our interpretation, I think that's where the problem comes. We can't let that happen. We, um, now, this is, this is an IRBS panel. That's why they asked me to be up here, even though I'm not a speaker at the conference, but we're all profs. We have another prof. We have a class that we offer called Apologetics in Pastoral Ministry. And it's not your traditional apologetics class. It's a class that addresses questions of science. Uh, The professor is a good friend of mine. I stayed in his house in July. He's a a credentialed scientist, PhD from University of Wales. He's an elder in a Reformed Baptist church in New Zealand, teaches at Massey University. His specialty is hydrogeomorphology, which is the study of the interaction of water and land. And, uh, and he's committed to a young earth, to 24-hour days of creation, um, to the universality of Noah's flood, because he believes that the word of God is more important than science and the conclusions of science. And I approached him, and I said, Ian, would you be willing to teach a course for us that handles these questions because all of the men who go out into pastoral ministry at one point or another will have their teenagers come to them and say, Dad, what about the dinosaurs? Dad, what about the flood? Dad, what about evolution? And the purpose of the course is not to, teach, to turn pastors into uh, in-depth, uh, have an in-depth awareness of scientific theories and how to refute them, but it's to give them information so that they can intelligently answer those questions in defense of the Word of God. And Ian is the right guy to teach that class. He's got all the the scientific cred, and he's got all the theological cred, and he brings it together and teaches that class. So that's, that's my take in response to this question. Do you believe they're missing the point of the text? Yes, I think that they've allowed the bully science to make them rethink what the inspired Word of God says. How do we best interact with them. We best interact with them by reminding them 
that the text of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God and that we receive it from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation and we take it at face value when we're able to do so, recognizing that there are metaphors, that God doesn't have wings and eyes and a hand and all the rest that we've heard today, but that we can take it at face value and recognize its truth. I think one of you guys said um, creation is mentioned in every section of Scripture. Um, Paul, in Hebrews 11, <laughs> there's, there's a long discussion about that, and he's convinced me. I think he's right. But we could do a whole conference on that, couldn't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's do that. We must believe that God is, and that he has made all things by his power. It's, it, it, in all the great Christian creeds, where do they begin? I believe in God the Father Almighty, you say it, maker of heaven and earth, right? I mean, this is, this is a central doctrine of Christianity. So we urge people not to be bullied by science and to recognize the wonder and the glory of the inspired word of God. Yes, Old Princeton is a really good example of that. There's a book um, that I read several years ago on the openness of Old Princeton to developing evolutionary theory in the 19th century. Charles Hodge was vehemently opposed to Darwinian evolution, but still believed that God could have used evolution as a means to bring the world to be what it is today. B.B. Warfield was even more open to the scientific philosophy of the day. And, and I would argue that old, the seeds of the demise of old Princeton, which took place in the 1920s, were sown by Hodge and Warfield, by the greats, because they opened the door to these ideas, which were rampant at Princeton University next door, and then were accepted at Princeton Theological Seminary. And the, the men that they trained were men who adopted evolutionary theory. It found its way into the Presbyterian Church U.S., and that was the end of the denomination. So for all the appreciation we have for Charles Hodge, A.A. Hodge, B.B. Warfield, and the rest, who were great men and who did great things, the, the seeds of the demise of the seminary were with them. Um, the name of the book, uh, I'll look it up and I'll get back to you in five minutes. But it's a really useful book that examines the, the progress of uh, evolutionary theory, its acceptance among the old Princeton theologians. In its, well, I, I wrote a review of it that we did in gerbs. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I'll look it up. Give me a minute. You guys want to add anything to that? Noted. Okay. And agreed. But anyway. All right. Again, on some creation stuff. What do the six days, I'm assuming the six days of creation, have to do with the seventh, the Sabbath, and the eighth day? How does it relate to, and I haven't checked the pronunciation of this with Chuck, the beatific vision? Beatific? Is there? Okay, thanks. I'm going to fix that. Beatific vision that Dr. Barcelos mentioned. Do 
The way it was stated didn't look like it was directed to me, though. But it does mention your esteemed name. I, that's what I thought. <laughs> okay, so uh, beatific vision. Okay, so okay, that's uh, John Fesco's book was really helpful uh, on this, and that is Last Things First. Um, what is it? Doing eschatology through the lens of Christ or whatever. Um, protology, okay, first words, is embedded with eschatology. Gerhardus Voss, in the revelational scheme of things, eschatology precedes soteriology. So what they're saying there is there, it's covenant of works, proferment of something better than the beginning was offered to Adam in the garden via the covenant of works. There's this eschatological betterment that, that comes from one of the post-Reformation guys. There was, Adam was created in such a way as he could become better. <laughs> um, the principle of betterment was either in him or offered to him. So if you, if you hold that, and I, I think we ought to, um, what the covenant of works offers by virtue of its fulfillment is a better state of existence than Adam's created state. Some sort of communion with God, vision. I think they use the language of vision because, is it Revelation 22? They shall see God. The, the question is, is that with the, what's that? Oh, Beatitudes. See, you should answer this. Um, what's the question? Six days? What do the six day? days have to do okay. with the seventh, the Sabbath, yeah. and the eighth There's day? There's a chapter in a book, Getting the Garden Right, that deals with all this stuff right there. Except... You want what, to go read that and then come no, back? No, except and... what Chuck's going to say. And, and the eighth day theology, I didn't touch that. In, in, I've never written on that. Mm. If you read Robert Haldane's little book on the Sabbath, republished recently... Um, by Reformation Heritage Books. Yeah. Has anybody read that? Fascinating discussion on the eighth day stuff. He does things uh, that are marvelous with it, showing eighth day theology of the Old Testament's an eschatological thing pointing to the eternal state, and, which I think that um, has a lot of merit to it. I've read that before, but I've just never in my mind felt settled. But he's going to bring up the Beatitudes and the Beatific Vision. Yeah, I'm not sure how to. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure how to put together the question, um, but I could say something about the beatific vision. But um, and Matt, I think your your um, boy had a question about that too. <clears throat> the seventh day. I mean, I don't, I don't. Yeah, this is dangerous. I don't have any formed thoughts on this, but the the seventh day. Um, Functioning in, in 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 the creation account, of course, it is the Sabbath. Um, there is there is a uh, a scheme that's implied um, in in the work of creation. The older guys, um, is, that the, is it the it would be the Latin? They'd refer to it as the Exodus, Reditus. There's the um, proceeding forth, the going out, and in, in, in the in the in the act of creation and the work of creation and bringing all things to being. 
Um, but there's this reditus, this, this return that is intended. Um, now in redemption, obviously, this, the, the return to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but there was all along intended, even in the covenant of works, this, this returning to God in the manner of, of praise and of worship um, and, and ordering uh, the whole image of God and, and the knowledge of God and the love of God, ordering all things back to God. Um, and, and, and the Sabbath pointed in that direction. We know that it didn't, didn't go in that direction for man. But, um, and so it is, it is pointing in the direction of, of beatitude. Um, and then, I mean, you've got the whole covenant of works and the tree of life and all sorts of pointers uh, in that particular direction as well. I could say something about the beatific vision. I'm not sure... Um, if we want to clarify the question, though. Yeah. Seven days of uh, the days of creation. Uh, did it take God six days to create, or did God take six days to create? God took six days to create, okay? Uh, could he have created, like Augustine says, you know, instantaneously everything? Yes. But he didn't. And the older guys, Owen and... Who's the guy? It's not Brown. The big Sabbath book somebody just reprinted. Brown, Browned, Browned, Nicholas, Nicholas, Bound. Um, yeah. Um, the, the, all, all the old guys dealt with this. Why did God do that? Well, it must be some sort of example for his creature to emulate according to his creaturely capacity. So the the six day or seven day week. Is is the divine uh, exemplar in 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 working, and then you know the divine rest. We have to whatever creaturely rest is. It's not exactly what God did, but it, it, the seventh day is also exemplar, divine exemplar. The creature is to uh, work unto this apex, uh, work unto this eschatological beatitude. You know. How long it would have taken him to do that? You know, Owen deals with the, how long was the probation? He said, we don't know, you know. Um, but the very act of creation uh, itself um, has that, you know, eschatological promise or proferment um, there in the cycle of, of labor and then, and then rest. So, but exactly what that the experience of that ultimate eschatological rest um, is going to be like? Chuck's going to tell you now. Is that the question? What is, the, um, the, the last part say something is about uh, dealing with how does this relate to the beatific vision? Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot at it, uh, at, a, at an answer. Um, we think of the beatific vision, um, we need to think about man's uh, beatitude, man's blessedness. So the beati- whatever the beatific vision will be, it will consist of, um, of the chief end of man, man being perfected in, in and for all of the purposes for which he exists, which is communion with God. 
and that communion with God, it's tied up with the image of God. It's, it, 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 is, it, is, it is had, it is experienced, it is owned um, through uh, the very way in which he's created us, through knowing him and loving him. Just as his own beatific life is and consists in him knowing and loving himself. Um, and so the beatific vision in the tradition Everyone agrees on this, that, that the beatific vision refers to an intellectual vision of God. Uh, I'm, I'm going to qualify this in a minute, but um, the language of beatific vision speaks to the language of seeing, seeing God. Um, in the Beatitudes, the pure in heart shall see God. And to see something is to, to know it as present. Um, that's the, the language of vision. It's, it's to know something as immediately present. Um, and so the beatific vision is to be in the presence of God and to know him as immediately present. Now, there's, there's some debate along the way of whether or not that's an intellectual vision of the essence of God. Um, all of the medieval, well, I don't want to say all, um, it was common in the medieval context to say yes. In fact, there were even condemnations at the University of Paris in 1277 for anybody that, um, that rejected that. But, um, so that was common. Um, it's another question as to the mediator and the person of Christ visibly and so forth and how that plays factors into all of this. But let me, let me add to this. There's disagreement as well. So, so beatific vision is the immediate knowledge of God, the intellectual vision, the intellectual knowledge of God as present. But there's some disagreement of whether or not beatitude, man's beatitude, properly, ultimately, and fully considered was, um, was an intellectual matter. Um, Scotus wants to say, Don Scotus wants to say that that yes, the beatific vision is the intellectual knowledge of God, but that culminates ultimately in, in love, in this love communion of, of the will with, with God. Um, and then other theologians, like the one that uh, I tend to like, Bonaventure, he connects them and says that uh, the beatific vision is really the perfection of man's intellect extended to the will, extended in love, in the presence of God. So it is, it is ultimately in one way or another to be in the presence of God, know him as present, and love him as, as present, um, and therefore come to rest, come to our own perfection, the end and the reason for which we, we exist, to be fully conformed into, um, into his image uh, in his own life wherein he loves and knows and loves himself fully. I, I have a question. You used the word immediate or immediately immediate more than once uh, on purpose obviously and why did you mean it yeah opposed to immediate i yeah i did okay and, um i don't know if i can uh on the on the fly very well but um it is an intellectual vision, um, and not merely in, in some manner, in some way, without Rich pressing me to, 
to tell you things I don't fully know, right? Um, but <clears throat> I was never caught up in the third heavens. And even if I was, I couldn't tell you. But um, it's, it's an immediate intellectual vision that's not mediated through the senses. That doesn't mean that we won't, that our, the totality of our beatitude and experience in the presence of God won't incorporate that. Um, and w- it doesn't mean that it won't incorporate um, physical sight, as it were, um, but that it is, it is not less than um, the kind of knowledge that the angels have um, and they don't have eyes. Um, and, and in that sense, it's, a, it's, an, it's an immediate presence of God to the intellect, apprehended by the intellect, which is um, a, a gift of, of glory. It's, it's the grace of glory. So it's a, a not-mediated knowledge. Let's just say there is, at the very least within the tradition, a pretty consistent understanding that it it must involve and on some fundamental level consist of a not mediated knowledge, but not limited to, because Christ will be present. Christ will be present with us always. And that is, that's a fundamental part of our, of our beatific life. Before Rich gets the microphone back. Yeah, before Rich gets the microphone back. Uh, two books to mention. Uh, this is really a helpful book. Title is Process and Providence, The Evolution Question at Princeton, 1845 to 1929. Published in 2013 by Erdman's. And that's what I reviewed. And I found it eye-opening and fascinating. And it's why I said what I did about Old Princeton. Another book that came to mind as I was listening is uh, William Van Dudeward's The Quest for the Historical Adam. Uh, He wrote it when he taught at Puritan Reformed Seminary. He now is at Greenville Presbyterian. It's published by Reformation Heritage Books. But it's it's a really helpful treatment of the old guys to pick up the lingo we've been using this week, and how the old guys understood creation and especially the reality of Adam as a historical being. So I would commend that to you. Both of those, uh, not um, uh, they're accessible books, let's put it that way. All right. Um, let's change a little bit here. Matthew 3.17. Voice comes out of heaven. We are told that a voice comes out of the open heavens. How are we to consider this voice being generated, and from whom is this voice being generated? Rich has an answer to this. I do? I, yes, you do. I heard it already. Go ahead. It's an immediate answer, too. What's, what's the question? I wasn't paying attention. It's at the baptism, the voice from heaven. God is revealing himself to creatures by a creature. It's a created thing. Revealing something about God. Is that what you wanted me 
and, say whatever and, you want to say. But well, like in John 12, like in John 12, a voice came from heaven as well there. So, yeah, people heard it and thought it was thunder, and others thought it was whatever. Um, so it has to be, if it's not an, um, if it's an audible sound, can it be a, a creature? Can it be a created sound by the creator? Certainly. Do we necessarily have to trace it back to vocal cords? No, we can't, or we shouldn't. Um, so it's, it's a created, audible thing, since it's obvious that other people heard it. Uh, by the way, Fred Sanders has a good section in there in his book on the Trinity where he deals with the doctrine of the Trinity at the baptism uh, of our Lord because you have the, the voice, you have the incarnate mm-hmm. son, and you have... Uh, yes, he does. He takes Augustine's, I think, uh, Augustine's. Um, leans on Augustine. And he has a great section. It's only like a page and a half. And the footnote where he pushes back on what men call Christophanies in the Old Testament. He he likes Augustine's view there as well, which is the biblical view. All right. There's no pre-incarnate incarnations, by the way. All right, this is the last one we have. So for those of you that are like chomping at the bits, ask a question. You might get a chance. Um... We're going to talk here about reading the confessions sideways. This is one of Jim's phrases. I like that phrase. What are some of the doctrines that are anticipated in chapter 4 if we're supposed to read the confession sideways? They're giving the mic this way, so that means it's coming to you. Yeah, there I'm you go. I'm surprised, yeah. Didn't you coin the phrase? I did. Yeah. I, nowadays, I'm being a little bit more intellectual, and I say read it horizontally. When you publish, you know, you have to I'll just go to sleep. make it sound better. Yeah. Um, my argument is that, and, and I think both of you, at least Chuck, you, or one of you guys, has, has emphasized the fact that it's important to carry with us uh, doctrine. And later, uh, later on in the confession, we look backwards. We, we anticipate or we fulfill. So we do that. Now, Paragraph, chapter 4 has three paragraphs, and all that we've talked about so far is the first paragraph. We haven't gotten to the second or third. Will we be getting there? Second one. Okay, not the third. So let's, let's do this quickly. Paragraph 1, which we've been considering, uh, is about protology and anticipates eschatology. Protology is the study of first things, eschatology, the study of last things. And we need to see that there, is, there are direct connections between that which is written in the first paragraph and the final two chapters of the Confession of Faith, which deal with personal and cosmic eschatology. So it's, it's anticipating things that we'll find there. The second paragraph is about the direct, direct and special creation of man in the creation of Adam and Eve. And, of course, that anticipates a great deal of things. Um, it, it, it anticipates um, theological anthropology and what we can say about us as humans and then what we can say about ourselves as fallen 
and what we can say about ourselves in terms of the recovery that comes to us in the new creation. It anticipates all of those things. So much of the rest of the confession is uh, in one way or another related to the second paragraph. The third paragraph speaks about the fact that the moral law was written on the heart of Adam and Eve, but in addition, moreover, there was given a, a, a positive commandment, a positive law to Adam and Eve, that so long as they kept that extra law that added what Sam calls plus law, so long as they kept that, they were happy in their communion with God, but when they failed to keep that positive law, they lost their status of communion with God and plunged themselves into sin. So it anticipates the, the doctrine of law as we find it in the Bible, what moral law is and what positive law is, which has direct relationship to things like circumcision and baptism and the Lord's Supper. All of those are rooted in positive law, that is law that is added to the moral law that is written on our heart. Positive law is in force for a specific period of time so that circumcision, Abram was 99 years old when the Lord came to him and said, circumcise yourself and all the males in your household. He he had not sinned for 99 years by being uncircumcised. It was only when God came to him and revealed that law to him that he was obliged to keep the commandment. And then baptism is likewise a positive law. Baptism comes to us through John the Baptist. It's a new covenant ordinance. This is an important part of our argument for credo baptism, by the way. It's given to us as an ordinance of the new covenant to speak to us about uh, our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in our salvation. So it, it really, it anticipates a great deal. I should have also said in paragraph one that we've been talking about, and you guys have mentioned this, its relationship to providence. It anticipates the doctrine of providence. Um, how does God execute his decrees? The shorter catechism asks, and the answer is God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. They have a close relationship with each other. So it's a really good question. Um, when you read chapter 4, you're anticipating most of the rest of Christian doctrine, and it's a, it's a demonstration to us of how important the doctrine of creation really is. You should, you should write a book on the confession. You did good there. Oh, thanks. Yeah, wow. yeah. That's a great idea. You work on that okay. in your yeah, free time. I'll do my best. So, you guys want to? We're good with that? All right. Okay, that concludes the answers that we have so far, the questions we have so far. And unless we want to push, you know, Chuck on immediate anymore. Probably not. Okay. You did really good there. Um, questions from the floor. We have a few minutes. So if you have one, just kind of maybe stand up where you are and, and speak very definitively. Use your outside preacher voice. Jeff. Watching an old series of lectures, Dr. John Gerstner, and I felt a little shocked when he denied creation ex nihilo on some ground about it uh, not making sense logically. Hmm. And I wondered, does any of you under, understand that position or know where that is in, in reformed life? I have no idea. I'm, my assumption is that if he if he wasn't just trying to be uh, um, shock and awe to get your attention about 
you know, and to go on and, and, but if he's actually rejecting it as illogical, then my assumption would be that he's having trouble seeing uh, how something can come from nothing, right? But, but then there's God, so. Yeah. Dr. Gershner would like to do the shock jock kind of thing sometimes, and Sproul got that bug in him too. I think you can look up Sproul, does God exist? I think he's got a short clip where he says, no, he doesn't. And it does some Latin root etymology and all this stuff. And I'm going, I don't think that's the way we should do that. But it's probably Gershner just doing the Gershner thing, you know. In order to make a point. In order to make a point. Johnny Gershner. Other questions? Brother, yes. Is sin a thing? <laughs> uh. what, what chapter would that be in? <laughs> um, the answer is no. Um, and in the, again, um, I don't know if it fully originates with Augustine or if it um, just is codified with him, but um, Augustine makes the the argument that sin is the is really the privation or the lack of being. It's the it's the privation of the good, um, and and that's why he'd also say that there is no such thing as absolute evil, um, because existence itself is a good. Um, it's better to exist than not to exist. And so existence itself is a gift of God, and so it is, it is good. So th- there's no such thing as absolute being, this thing. I mean, absolute, uh, what, what was I saying? Absolute evil, this, this thing that is evil, just evil. Um, but it's the privation of, of the good uh, in, in something that is good insofar as it exists, at least. The corruption of the good, that sort of thing. Um. Another? We have a few minutes. So you're saying sin is not a material thing? Sin is not a material thing. Sin can be in material things. Sin is, a, sin is not an efficient cause either. It's a deficient cause, as the tradition would say. Wrap your head around that. I got a question. Is there, what's the difference, or is there a difference between Presbyterian covenant theology and Reformed Baptist covenant theology? More to the... We have five minutes on this, by the way. <laughs> see, the book, see the book table. We... <laughs> What's the difference? Is there a difference? Is there a difference? Yes. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Taking advantage oh, of the what? closed questions. Please elaborate. Coming yeah, but... Okay, so... Go to Houston, Rich, October, and listen to the lecture. Rich made me speak on the beatific vision, so... Well, there... The question is... is Give him what's, something. He came a long the, way. What's the difference between Presbyterian covenant theology... And Reformed Baptist covenant theology. There are Presbyterian covenant theologies, and there are Reformed, unfortunate, Reformed Baptist covenant theologies as well. So it's a really tough question, you know. There's various strands. But basically, I think. 
Yeah, I think our, I think our confession is uh, covenant of works, grace, and redemption. Uh, um, they're all in there, um, which puts us in line with a lot of Presbyterians. We parse those things out differently, you know. So I, I, I don't think I've ever publicly identified myself as a 1689 Federalist. That was just the name of a website that our friend named, right? Uh, it's, you don't go around the world saying I'm a 1689 Federalist, do you? Not yeah. Um, so there's that strand of it, and all that means is Brandon Adams is the one that started that website, and I'd recommend those uh, videos that'll help you see the difference between uh, certain schools of thought. But he was just trying to reflect the fact that the, the majority position in the 17th century among the particular Baptists was the Cox view of uh, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. And somehow, some way, the benefits of Christ got to the people of Christ before the incarnation of Christ, based on the virtue of Christ in this new covenant. So there are Reformed Baptists that are more, um, take more of a, like a Presbyterian almost view of the administrations of the covenant of grace. Um, there are various administrations, like Abrahamic covenant is, is, is an administration of the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. I guess the Davidic covenant is an administration. The new covenant is an administration. So that covenant of grace is actually a, a theological concept that gets incorporated into historically rooted covenants. Um, personally, I held that view for I don't know how long, but... I got to know Jim Renahan, and he sent me the Cox thing, and I'm going, oh, my. And then I started reading John Owen, too. And um, I'm just rambling. You're doing a good job rambling. I mean, if you have something else to ramble about. 1689federalism.com. There's a bunch of videos. Uh, Dr. Renahan, Sam. Sam was very young back then. Um, and I did those, and I, those, those will help you. Okay. Sam's book is back there. The Mystery of Christ. That's a very excellent, very well-written book. And then, seriously, they're doing a conference. Pascal Deneau, Sam and James Renahan down in Houston. Yep. At, what's the church? Grace Family. Grace Family. Yes, in uh, October. All right. Maybe time for one more quick question. Somebody has one you're sitting on. Can we get a lecture on the doctrine of divine can you get a lecture on it in less than 60 seconds? SCRBPC.org, 2015. James Dalzell. It's already up. Cruz? I'm having trouble putting it together in my head, but in, what, in the statements you've made about taking a reading of the entirety of the Bible and then applying it in subsequent readings, what about the warnings of not reading Old Testament interpretations I'm not sure I understand. So to say it another way, I, I want to say I've come across warnings of taking Old Testament applications to certain texts and trying oh. to see them in the New Testament. Not typology style things, but uh, the meaning of what the author meant and trying to expand upon it into the New Testament. 
Brother, I think you're talking about the progress of Revelation and how we relate the two Testaments to each other. Uh, why, why don't we place the Old Testament on the same level as we do with the New and, for example, revive the nation of Israel and uh, take seriously all the Mosaic uh, commands? Is, am I thinking in the right way? Okay. Uh, the, the answer is a long answer, except to, the, 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 to say it briefly, we need to have a clear understanding of how the new fulfills the old and how the old anticipates the new. Um, it, it's very helpful for us. You know, for me, one of the key verses in the Bible that helps me to understand this is another in the beginning verse that hasn't come up yet in our conference, and it's Mark 1.1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Mark is not saying, now I'm about to commence my writing, but rather he's saying, this is the moment when the, the new covenant begins to come into human history, and the one who brings that moment is John the Baptist, who is, in, on the one hand, an Old Testament prophet, but he's different to all the rest of the Old Testament prophets because he had the privilege of saying, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and putting him underwater and bringing him back out, which none of the Old Testament prophets were able to do. So he's a prophet of the new covenant in that sense. And he, the inception of the new covenant is that moment when he comes forth in order to be the forerunner and to point out the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. So, so from that point onwards, we recognize that there is a difference between the old and the new. But it's not a difference that's like going into a blackened room and flipping a light switch and all of a sudden it's bright. The way that I think of it is that it's more like walking into a room with a dimmer and beginning to turn up the light with that dimmer until you come to the fullness of day. If, if I were to put it on a clock... I would say this, the Old Testament prophets prophesied at 3 a.m., the darkest part of the night. John the Baptist is at 6 a.m., when the sun is coming over the horizon and beginning to dawn. The ministry of the Lord Jesus is at high noon, when brightly shining, we hear from him, and the ministry of the, the apostles, Paul and Peter and John and others, comes at 3 in the afternoon as they look back on the events of Christ. So that, that helps me to think through the relationship and the progress, the forward movement of the one to the other. So we, we can look at the Old Testament and we can say, there are things in the Old Testament that definitely teach us about who God is and what God's purpose is, and even how we are to live our lives, but we view them through the lens of the New Testament and what the New Testament teaches us. I, I don't know if that helps to answer your question we're already past the time we were told to end. Does that help at all, brother? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all, and thank you, men, for your help, your answers. I would encourage you who are listening today, just grab these men while they're here and ask them follow-on questions. If your question wasn't fully answered and interact with them more during the breaks and during dinner, 